It's Wrestling Observer Radio. Garrett and Dave here on a Friday afternoon, and we have a special guest, uh, Mike Tanay. Uh, Mike, I just want to open it up by saying, you know, they've heard they've heard Dave and I talk about Don West, but who better to to tell us about who Don West was th- than you? And I just kind of wanted to open the floor and and let you talk about Don. Well, thank you. Um, you know, Don West, and everybody goes to this card, the larger-than-life personality, Don was the definition of that, a definition of larger-than-life personality, and he had a heart to match. Uh, I think, as you guys can see by the social media reaction, uh, universally loved by everybody that worked with him, and I think equally respected, even by those who didn't work with him. We've seen by TV tributes from both the WWE, which I have to say was a very pleasant surprise, and by AEW. Um, In the wrestling business, I think it's just by the nature of the business, you make a lot of great acquaintances, but very few great friends. And that's exactly what he was. And I think our mutual friend, Craig Jenkins, that worked with us at uh, DNA and Impact, I think he says it best. He, he always says, we loved him like a brother. Dave? Yes. Um, I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, you and I talked about him uh, a couple days ago. And um, it's... It's, you know, I mean, he was somebody who really, I mean, like you, you kind of was his, he was his mentor on wrestling. He came in because somebody had seen him, you know, hawking merchandise. Vince Russo saw him hawking merchandise and thought that he would be a, a good addition to the business and came in kind of um, years later, actually came in when uh, TNA started with you, you know, on day one, he had done, I guess, one uh practice show and then you and him were doing live pay-per-view every week uh you know i mean it was with you know i mean he came in he came in as cold as you could be probably colder than almost anyone that's ever done a live pay-per-view you know um i i think that's a great point um my son eric was a big fan of don west before he got into wrestling and I have to admit that I really was not aware of Don from the shop at home stuff. And Don and I always used to do a, the old Smothers Brothers routine about how mom always liked you best because my own son, my own son liked him better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. um, Right right away we hit it off. I, I remember it was a, my first real meeting with him was the the drive that we made together down to uh, Huntsville, Alabama, I think it was, for the first TNA show. And uh, just a couple of days before that, Burt Prentice had promoted a show at the uh, fairgrounds in Nashville. And uh, I had agreed to come in and be the lead announcer for TNA and Jerry Jarrett had given me a call just a couple of days before that. I think it was a Saturday that they did the show. And Jerry had said to me that Bert was running the show on Saturday night, and we would like for you and Don West and Ed Ferrara do a practice run. And I said to Jerry, I said, uh, are, are, a practice run, are, are you going to pay me for the practice run? Uh, and Jerry said, no. And I told him, I said, Jerry, I don't need any practice. I'll be there Wednesday night and I'll be there ready to go. As I look back on it, I kind of wish that I had done that for, for really one reason. And that's because I could have been there to see Don West first night in the wrestling business. And it's, it's a crazy story. night. He, he probably told me the story, Dave, dozens of times going forward and that was the night at the fairgrounds in nashville 
where Jim Cornette sort of went ballistic, I guess you'd say, on one Ed Ferrara in relationship to what Ed had done with the Oklahoma character that had been mocking Jim Ross. And if you can imagine, you are starting this new job. This is your first day in the business. You're in the fairgrounds for just a matter of minutes. And you walk in and you see this going on. And it had to probably be, I think it had to be unnerving at first to Don. But as much as he told the story going forward, you just knew that he realized that he was getting into something that, much like his personality, which we always say is that larger-than-life personality, he was getting into that kind of a business. And uh, what a fit, right? What a fit. As, as far as mentoring Don, I think the mechanics of it, that was the minor stuff. Um, the mechanics as far as when to lay out, when to let the play-by-play guy take over, when to uh, always be aware of the possibility of a pin attempt, just little things like that. That's something that you can pretty much get anybody up and going with in in a short amount of time, I hope. And he would mention to me many times that I helped him, I think, a lot more with the, the landmines of the wrestling business and things to avoid, people to avoid. So as far as being a mentor to him, he picked it up essentially right from the start. He would watch uh, some WWE TV or some other things that he could find, videos and the like, to try and get himself up and running in regards to that. Uh, So I it, it, it would be hard for me to say that I mentored him in the wrestling announcing side of things because he had his own style. But I, I think I taught him a lot about what to expect and what to watch out for. Well, I mean, some, some of it would have been just kind of that, that intricate, you know, I mean, there's certain knowledge of wrestling that you have to have to survive in wrestling and because and it's a unique business. You know, I mean, it's like it's it's not like the NHL or, or or something like that. I mean, and I mean, how I mean, he seemed to where I mean, he certainly fit in. Um, but I mean, how you know, how hard would you say or or, um, you know, was was his transition to seeing kind of this crazy quasi sport thing? Because he was not like like you mentioned to me. He was not any kind of a big wrestling fan. I mean, he was—he had some awareness of it, like everybody did, but but not really much more than that. You know, even though he was, you know, he was a big baseball fan and a big sports fan. It really was. It was a surface knowledge of the wrestling business that he had. He knew the the major players, but really not much past that. Not much from a history standpoint either, because it just was not something that interested him uh, up to that point. But uh, it was a big help that he was a sports fan because our job as wrestling announcers is to try and present, at least for me, it was always to try and present it in a most sports-like manner. And uh, so from from that standpoint, I think he was real comfortable with it. Um, Fitting in, I think the biggest thing that allowed him to fit in because again, you're walking into a business where you don't, you, you're not going to have a lot of respect from the people, just because you don't, you don't have any kind of knowledge level that they do. So right off the bat, you don't have that. But he was able to fit in socially, and uh, the relationships that he made with the wrestlers, uh, I would, I think he would see that what I tried to do was go around and especially if it was somebody who was new to the promotion and got right from the start of TNA, if you remember there, we had a lot of new bodies and I would just, you know, pretty much spend the afternoon um, introducing myself to the talent, just trying to get some information on them. If I didn't know their background and if I didn't know their background, just trying to get them 
just trying to get to know them better. So I think he saw that. And I can't recall if I had suggested to him to do that, but he certainly did. And rather than just uh, waste your time in catering in the afternoon, when you're at the building for hours before the show, he would go out and make those social relationships. And then they just build day by day, week by week. Uh, so I think that was kind of the, if there was a key to his immediate success, I really think that's probably what it was. You've worked with uh, uh, some some really good announcers, broadcasters. What do you think was, was Don's, uh, what made him succeed in that role? And what do you think was like his best trait as a broadcaster? Well, I think simply his energy. If we look back on the history of wrestling announcers, and I, I'm willing to be corrected here, I don't, I don't think there really was anybody before that was really like him from that energy standpoint. Um, not, not at that level, no, no. Not, not, not at that level. Not at that level. I mean, there were, there were. I mean, there weren't. I mean, I think back, and you know, you could think back too. There weren't a lot of that intense guys i mean maybe you know i mean i almost think like maybe in japan you would get that but but not really in the united states other than i mean jim ross was to a degree not at don's degree i mean but it also he was doing play by play and but but as far as um you know it was you know a lot of the guys i mean i don't really remember guys that much and and i mean the thing is i think at first it kind of you know because he was unique and different a lot of people don't like different and and he came from you know, a different world, you know, I think that it was hard for some people to warm up to him. I think by the end, you know, I know when, when he was replaced, people were sad. Um, so, but, but, um, you know, it was, it, it, it was like different as a wrestling fan, uh, you know, to, to listen to Don as compared to, cause you kind of like are, you kind of like what, you know, you're kind of, that's what you expect. And when it's different, it's kind of hard and it takes a, a time to like warm up to it, so to speak, I think. Oh, I get that. I think what you're, what you're saying is he took the listener initially, he took them out of their comfort zone. Um, well, I mean, more, I have, more, 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 what I would say is, is you're taught like, this is what an announcer does. And Don was, a, was unique and, you know, Pat McAfee's doing it now, but, but with Pat McAfee, it's very different because like we talked about, you know, I mean, there, there was Don and it's a different era. Um, you know, it's kind of like, like a lot of people now are really over the top for attention. Whereas with Don, that was just Don and, it's, and that's what he was hired for. You know, some, you know, they saw him on the shop at home network and saw the energy and thought like this guy would be great for wrestling. And in time, you know, when, once he learned wrestling, he, um, he was. Yeah. He was hired to be the voice of the fan, which again, right at the start, I'm, I'm not sure thinking back on it that I thought that he was going to succeed right from the start. But when you see someone's energy level, which is one thing combined with the passion that they have for it, I think that's where it's different from somebody who's just playing a role and being loud. Um, I remember, I don't think I probably watched the first couple shows back until maybe we were three or four in. And I remember watching back one of the shows and I came to the conclusion almost immediately that I needed to get my volume level up. If, if I was going to compete and if I wasn't going to be left on the side of the road, because you had to have that. And, and I think probably that might've been off putting for people and viewers as well, just because a lot of it was a little extra loud than they were used to. Um, maybe a little over the top, maybe a little bit more salesmanship from Don than they were used to. But probably, as I think back on it, the greatest compliment that we got came from you, Dave, which didn't come until just really the last couple of years. And that was when uh, Axis TV started replaying some of the older TNA and some of the older Impact shows 
and you would explain to me that you had watched the first run impact show and you essentially started to go back to work and you had left the, the TV on. And as you sat there, you heard that energy. You heard that passion uh, from Mike Tanay and Don West. And I think, not to put words in your mouth, but I think your level of appreciation for what we did grew greatly because you realized at that point that nobody uh, really was doing that, that kind of an announcing job. It was, it was also night and day. You know, you're watching one show with, you, you know, and, and, and also I think that at the time that I watched that, um, and, and one of the things with, with TNA, I think when we look back, um, because, you know, again, like I, I think, you know, this when it comes to wrestling, a lot of times the talent in wrestling, and this probably goes with announcers too, um, when it's going on, you kind of just take it for granted. But when you look back, I mean, sometimes you'll watch stuff and you'll see, oh my God, like this is a lot worse than I remembered it. Or you'll look back and go, man, this is so much better. And like with, with the access thing, they would air the old stuff and then they would air, you know, and then, then they would, and they were airing the current stuff, you know, and they would do the, the you know, so you would do the old stuff, you know, it was right one in a row and the contrast, you know, and, and again, the product was also much better. But the announcing, I mean, that's the one thing that I remember was like, you know, I watched the announcing in an impact at that time. And then I'm watching you and Don and it's just like, this is, is so much better than than the product that they were giving at the time. And, and you know, some of it, again, you know, you had you had better talent than they than they had later. Um, and 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 I think talent that in time ended up being more appreciated because, you know, like just to, just because I'm going to throw the name out, AJ, like we all knew he was good. Right. We all knew he was great even. But he didn't have the rep for being great until, like, it takes years to get that rep even when you see it. You know, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Well, there, there's no doubt that there's a direct correlation between how good the wrestling talent is and how good the wrestling announcing is. Uh, no matter how good a wrestling announcer is, if the talent level is not up to speed it's really it, it's just half of the package so i think any time that if, if you look back at people that have won announcer of the year awards for example i think directly you can point to that was probably a pretty hot period in time for the for that company that they worked for and i would I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that anybody who wins an announcer of the year award probably needs to share that 50-50 with the talent. Is there one broadcast that you guys did that, that you, you were most happy with or most proud of, whether it was a, a big show or just a, a random show, but where you sort of were, you looked at him and you're like, okay, we, we really, really got this and, and we're really good well i think that probably happens multiple times along the way you do thousands of tv shows like i did in a career and it becomes really futile to try and rate them or to pick this one show out and my god i can't tell you how many autograph sessions I've done where people have asked me, what was your favorite match to announce? <laughs> well, let, let, me, let me think about this. After doing well over 2,000 TV shows and having probably, what, anywhere from six to ten matches on a show, we're probably looking at a body of work of 20,000 matches. And you would like me to narrow that down to one. <laughs> so it's impossible. I, 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 can't, I can't narrow it down in terms of that with Don to say it was Lamiversary 2003 where we clicked and we looked each other in the eye and said that. Nah, it was, I think it was the, the process of growing together and realizing along the way that we were getting better and we were clicking. And then you reach the comfort with your partner and I think probably 
rather than see a specific show, if I had to narrow it down to a specific time, I would think probably about a year or so in where it really felt like we both were working in tandem. Um, the personal friendship and relationship that you have with your broadcast partner can be a great help. I don't think that it's, I don't think it's in the announcer's handbook that you need to be, the play-by-play guy doesn't need to be best friends with his color man. But shit, it sure helps. Um, just because you're, you know that you guys are, you're out there on that island. Um, yeah, I can't say one specific show, but I think probably somewhere between, you know, six to nine months to a year in, the familiarity, the friendship that's grown, and that's when you know that, that you're sort of hitting your stride. Well, I mean, one of the things that you'd mentioned to me that was so interesting, you know, and I, it is, is like the first, you know, that, that first ride you talked about when you went from Nashville to Huntsville, and here you are, you know, two guys, and, and I mean, you're two of the uh, most I mean, I, I, and I guess the sport kind of lends itself to it, but you were two of the most statistic baseball-oriented people, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I mean, and there's there are a lot of people like that, but you were definitely two of them. And then the, the so so the, and that didn't surprise me, okay? Because I, I I knew Don was a sports fan, and I could sort of tell, you know, just just his his kind of his knowledge of baseball and other places I could see, and obviously I know you, but the other one, which which kind of I don't want to say floored me, but the religious thing. I mean, I was just totally unaware that, that, that you two had that, you know, you would bond over, over baseball and other sports, you know, during the season and the gambling and the, everything like that, but also over the, the religious, you know, you know, reciting religious verses. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to overstate that, but I, I, what I can say is the sports definitely was, was huge right off the bat. And isn't it funny that, that two guys who bond over the, the, the historical aspect, I would say, even more than the statistical aspect, but but both historical and statistical. And it's funny that they bond over that and they work together so well in, in a in a with a product that really turns its back on history and statistics. So yeah, it, it, the Don was a huge sports fan. You mentioned we bonded over sports gambling. Not really. Um, he was more bemused by my sports betting. And I think the, the, the stuff that I remember the most when we would be in a bar or a restaurant or in a hotel watching a game together, he couldn't figure out in his head. He just could not really just, figure out why I didn't want teams to score. How could you watch a game? Oh, you, were betting, you were betting the under. And, and see, as a sports better and somebody who's been around it for 50-plus years, sports betting, talk about a Johnny-come-lately. Boy, I hope this sports betting thing really takes off. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's, you know I, I'm going to make myself a note here. I should probably do a sports betting podcast. Let me make a note. Oh, oh wait a minute. Oh. You did that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he, we, we would watch a basketball game. And I remember one specific, we were watching a, a NCAA championship game. And uh, as a sports better, I'm a contrarian. So I would prefer to side with the house in most instances, not all. And so I had made a wager on the under in the game. And as a fan, Don just could not get it through his head that I wanted to watch this game and I wanted to commit three hours of my life to watching people fail. <laughs> he just could not figure it and he would just shake his head. So we definitely bonded over sports, not over gambling. When it comes to the uh the stuff that I told you about with the the Bible books. I just always found it hilarious. Um, Don, as I later found out, didn't find this out right away, but in addition to his time that he spent at Purdue, um, he also attended 
a theological school. I can't tell you which one it was. Uh, but he was a person who uh, had a good faith, great faith, but also studied the Bible. Um, probably something that people don't know is that I spent uh, the first, when I think it back, I went to public school in kindergarten and then spent grades one through eight in a parochial school. So when you're spending eight years in a parochial school, you know that there's a certain percentage of the curriculum that's about that. And just for fun, I would start off the books of the Bible and say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then Don would pick it up from there and proceed to rifle off the the rest of the Bible books in order. And I would look at Don and I would say, do you think there's ever been two wrestling announcers in history that both could sit here and, and recite the books of the Bible in order. <laughs> so it, it, it was just one of those things that we laughed about and connected with. Um, yeah, he was definitely a man of faith. And, uh, and I know that that faith gave him comfort in the last uh, year and a half when he was dealing with hell. You know, one thing, um, that I thought was interesting was, you know, how he got to Wenatchee, Washington. I mean, he showed up, um, you know, he was doing the merchandise thing for, for, for TNA at the house shows mm -hmm. and they ran a show in this city. That's, you know, essentially kind of the middle of nowhere, you know, it's like two hours from <laughs> Seattle, maybe two hours from Spokane, I guess, but it's, yeah, it's yeah, three, it's, three, it, three from Seattle and two from Spokane. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like this this, you know, small town, you know, and he just, you know, he met somebody there and I guess he just like you like they said, like he just liked the scenery or something. And he just liked to, you know, read a book, you know, while watching the river or something, you know. <laughs> yep. I mean, what did what yeah, did he what, what did he tell you about that transition from from, you know, wrestling to just wanting to live in Wenatchee, Washington? I keep saying Wisconsin for some stupid reason. <laughs> Yeah, he, he really loved the area, and you're right. It was part of a DNA house show loop somewhere in the 2000s, and uh, they went to Wenatchee, Washington for, for an, a live event, and he liked everything about it. He liked the scenery. He liked the vibe. He liked the people, and he had made a connection with uh, one of the building people there in Wenatchee uh, because Don was – a part of the merchandise and that was you know his big thing with with tna was dealing with the, the merchandise so he would know the uh, front office people in the buildings that that we would put on shows around the country and uh, formed a relationship there with someone that had worked in the front office of the uh, wenatchee wild which is the hockey team it's really the only form of entertainment in Wenatchee. That's their sports. That's their everything. And he had this relationship so that when the opportunity presented itself, he was able to make the contact, explain what he wanted to do and proposed to do. And they needed someone to be their marketing person, to be their merchandise person. So he's not only in charge of the merchandise, which he was, the T-shirts and caps and the likes for the hockey team. And his wife would, many, many games, work the merchandise booth. Um, but Don also was in charge of marketing, so he's doing uh, a big part of his job was uh, ticket sales, uh, primarily to businesses and group sales and, and, and that type of thing. And then Don also was the, the in-house in-game guy that's on the microphone that's walking throughout the arena, let's say before the game, at the intermissions. And God, who would be better than Don West to get the crowd fired up uh, between periods? And as you're going into the third period and you're trying to get the people on their feet, who's going to be better than him to bring out that energy level, right? You know, the one thing I wanted to bring up also was, um, you know, the fight at the end. Um, you know, he... You know, I mean, when I was writing it and when you and I talked, I mean, the thing that was really, you know, like, you know, especially because you went through the similar thing with Bobby Heenan 
And and yeah. I remember with with Gordon Soley is you had three guys who were so famous for their 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 talking, their voice, their you know in Bobby's case, you know his his wit, Don his energy, and Gordon just his technical knowledge. I guess is the best way to put it. And and you know just in later life, you know great communicators and the inability to verbally communicate at the end of their lives. It's just. It's I mean, I, I don't know, like you could probably tell me how, how, you know, being close with him somewhat how he dealt with it. But just the the cruel irony, I guess, would be my term for yep. for that with those with Don and with with Bobby Heenan and with uh, with Gordon. Yeah, you, you, you covered it very well. The thing that I would add is that it became difficult for me because I had gone through that uh, with Bobby and I know it was a such a, a difficult thing for him to deal with when it came to friends of his. And I'm talking decades long friends of his who all of a sudden would not call him on the phone because trying to decipher what Bobby was saying, this is, you know, they had to remove the man's tongue. It becomes, he would try and talk. I think Cindy, his wife, really had a great knack for knowing what he was saying. And she always said to me that I probably was number two in, in that regard. I think the biggest thing was I knew so many of Bobby's stories backwards, forwards, and sideways that I knew once he got started down the road on a story, I could definitely tell where it was going. He also didn't like to be... Uh, dealt with in a way where if, if he is telling you something on the phone and you're on the other end of the phone and you're just playing along and you're going, uh-huh, uh-huh. He would know, cause he would then throw in a question and he would know that if you're not answering his question, you're just playing along and humoring him. <laughs> and it bothered him a lot. But by, but by the same token, if you, by the time you said to him for the third time, damn, I, I'm just not getting it. Can you give it to me one more time? You know, it got real frustrating. Um, Don, yeah, again, the same thing happened for the past few months of his life, or the last few months of his life, I guess. Um, he was not able to really speak very well, and it was in a similar fashion that maybe six months out, you could just see the decline, and you would talk to him on the phone, and there would be words that you might confuse with other words. And then the last couple months, he, he was not able to speak at all. And so you just try and call and uh, you just try and take one end of the conversation is what you do. When he uh, had, yeah, the... yeah it's, it's a, it's a tough thing to do, but what, what's the, what's the other option? You ignore him. Yeah. When, what was it? I mean, as, as far as like, you know, I mean, he had the, the thing and then he had what he thought was the clean bill of health. And I remember, I remember that very well, you know, it was a great day when we heard that. And then it's kind of like, and I'm sure, you know, you being closer, being close to him, but even, you know, when you, when you get that news that, you know, he, he beat it or it looks good. And then you get the, you know, and we've all been through it with other people, but then you get that news yeah. that it's, it's back and it's, and then it's getting worse. You know, I mean, what, what kind of was, what could you tell from him and, and, and just for you yourself, you know, dealing with, with that situation? Yeah, it was a, uh, it was a strain for sure because the, the false hope spot was the killer. It really was. Um, and I think it was not only for Don, but it was for so many people in the wrestling business because once you hear that Don has cancer, there's the concern that you have. But then a couple months later, oh, he beat it. Isn't that great? And like we talked about earlier, acquaintances and friends, ah, oh, it, it leaves your mind because he's, he's beaten that and it's all good. But then when it comes back again, and so many people that I spoke with just didn't have, they, they, they never got past that first time when, when they told him that everything was okay. They never really picked up that that things had turned bad again, and then they just really became terrible. And he had, you know, in addition to working for the hockey team, he was 
uh, doing a, a three-hour-a-day sports talk radio show in Wenatchee, Washington as well. And, God, he loved that. He really did. He had done it in Nashville as when, when he was living in Nashville when we were doing the, uh, the TNA shows. But he really liked that three hours a day on the radio, that ability to communicate. And then that was taken away from him. And then equally at the end, he lost his ability, his, I guess you would say a lot of his motor functions were his, he couldn't, he couldn't text with people anymore. And people would say, why isn't Don returning my text? Yeah. I would tell him it's not about you. He can't. Sending texts don't expect a return. Um, yeah. So it was, it, it, he, he wanted to get back to the radio show, was unable to do that. Uh, I've told you, the man was a voracious reader. He loved to read books. His dream was to retire in Wenatchee, pull up that big chair that he had uh, next to the Columbia River, sit out in the sun, take his shirt off and read a book for four hours, come back and bother me. And uh, <laughs> when, dinner, when come back and bother me when dinner's ready, right? Um <laughs> And that was taken away from him. Now, he, he did have some of that time, of course, when he lived there. But that that sort of goal that he had in his brain um, wasn't able to fulfill that. And so just a lot of things like that where it was a lot of those things were taken away. But that and that that level of just the ability to communicate with people. God, that has to be frustrating, right? Yeah. What would you say in this a weird question, but um, as far as like a life lessons you learned from him or things you learned from him or things that you'll remember the most about him, whether it's the broadcasting or, or, or just the friendship or whatever, what kind of would, you know, if I ask you that, what would kind of come to your mind? Well, for me, the biggest thing has been just trying to, um, especially in light of what happened, just overlook the small shit, just, you know, de deal with the major stuff and not really worry about stuff that, that you really don't have any control over. And uh, yeah, I think that probably uh, for me, just in the last couple months of his life, seeing what he was going through, you say to yourself, so, so you see what he's going through. You FaceTime him um, for a phone conversation where he's in bed and he can't speak. Why am I getting upset over traffic? <laughs> so, yeah, think of the, think of the bigger things. Think of the bigger things in life. So that 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 probably you know you 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 get life lessons you're going through, and I think just again, like I said, his ability to be so social with everybody, uh, be, be, make make friends with everybody while you're there at work. Try not to make enemies certainly helps with the longevity of your career at the same time. So yeah, all of those things, but uh, yeah, it really was just a great guy to be friends with. Um, God, we had so many fun times. I think about all the troubles that Southwest airlines is going through right now. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel had a joke the other night. He said, Southwest airlines, you know, their seating policy it's to let you sit wherever you, whatever, ever you want, wherever you want. He says, what could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> and I think about Don, Don and I traveling so many times on Southwest Airlines. And we had a, and we had a, <laughs> a unique deal that we would do where you have the three across seats and I would get on the window and Don would get on the aisle and we would get our reading material and of course, the whole idea is to keep the middle seat empty, right? Yeah. So as people are boarding, at first they're going to go go sit in the back where there's plenty of seats. But now once we get in the home stretch, there's not that many seats available. So they're always looking, where could I have that middle seat? So as people would be getting close to us, uh, we would both begin to fight with each other. So Jeff, <laughs> so, 
So just as somebody, just as somebody's walking down the aisle and you can see that their eyes and their head is shifting toward that empty seat between you, uh, we put down our reading material. And of course, when you've got Don involved in this, you don't need to worry about volume. And we would have a full fight and the people would see both of us pointing our fingers at each other. And I, I would, I would hit him in the chest with my finger and he'd say, Oh, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. You're nuts. And of course the people would go, Holy shit, get me out of here. <laughs> and it was fantastic because they would, uh, they'd find their way to the back of the plane and sit in the middle seat next to somebody else. And it, it got to be so fun that there would be other uh, TNA and impact employees that just in anticipation when they would see Mike and Don on the same flight, they would park themselves on the road directly behind us just to get the show. <laughs> and uh, it, re- it really, really was uh, you know, just, just things like that. There's, you know, there's a million stories like that, but just, just the, that that kind of a fun thing was uh, was really some of the things that I think about and remember when it comes to Don. And I, I do want to say, rest in peace, D Dub. It was really great knowing the man. And if before I get out of here, if I can have one more minute of your time, and I don't want to take this away from Don or anything, but I, I, I found a, I found a really interesting story, and that is that just within the last week or two, and I think. Gosh, it's right about the same time as Don's passing, just within the last week or two, that Bobby Heenan passed away here in Las Vegas. Now, before you say, well, Mike's... Mike's oh, really I know the story. It. Go ahead, yeah. I didn't, and I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Mike has been spending too much time at the legal weed dispensary. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know this story. <laughs> Which is probably, there's not an argument from me on that topic. But <laughs> just within the last week, Bobby Heenan died here in Las Vegas. And anybody who is listening to this that has the, on their bookshelf the first of the Bobby Heenan books, blow the dust off of it. And go read a chapter 13 called I Just Wanted to See His Face, which is the story of Bobby Heenan uh, trying to find his father and finding out that his father had passed away. This was in 1997. We were, um, and Bobby had talked about this for years, that it, it, it was one of those things where he, he wanted to put the pieces of the puzzle of his life together. As he said in the book, Jim Brunzel's wife suggested the title. I just wanted to see his face. So he did some detective work with the help of his wife, Cindy. And um, he found out that his family was in Las Vegas. So the next time that we had a show in Las Vegas, it was his thought to try and look these people up. And this was, this was really cold. This was knocking on a door when they don't know you're coming. And, of course, the brain being the weasel that he is, he sent Cindy up to the door to knock on it. And they came back and, just, just read the chapter and you'll, you'll get all the idea that, behind what I'm saying here. But what, what, we're, <laughs> what we're coming around to is that Bobby Heenan in real life, his name was Ray. His name was not Bobby. His name was not Robert. And Dave's told the story a million times like we, like, like we all have. He was named Bobby because Dick the Bruiser gave him the name because the wrestling manager in the business was Bobby Davis. And Dick the Bruiser didn't think that Ray Heenan worked. So he became Bobby Heenan. So Bobby finds out that he has in Las Vegas uh, three half brothers. And I can now tell you that all three of Bobby's half brothers have now passed away. They're all deceased. Mm. But the crazy thing is the brother that just died here in the last week or so, his legitimate name was Robert Heenan. And he was. Think of this. 
He was a Catholic priest. He died at the age of 77. Bobby Heenan was 72 when he died five years ago. So 77 years ago, these two people were fathered by the same man. One of them became a Catholic priest. The other became the brain. <laughs> That's not too diverse, is it? It's, yeah. And wow. he, was, he was a Catholic priest. He became a pretty close friend of my wife, Karen, and I living in Las Vegas. He presided over Bobby's funeral five years ago in Florida. Um, and we just got word from, from the brain's daughter, Jess, that her unk had passed away. And uh, it, was, it was just, it, it, to, to listen to Bobby and to, to, to have him explain how he finally had this family again, that he'd never, he'd never had for all those years. And Dave, you will appreciate this probably more than just about anybody. The best line that he had when he would introduce the other Bobby Heenan, Robert Heenan, when he would introduce him to people, he was so proud that he was a Catholic priest and he was here in Las Vegas. And he was a teacher also, by the way, Dave, at a little school called Bishop Gorman. Bishop Gorman. Did he so, teach? Did he teach Dane and Lorenzo? Did, did you ever find no, out? Isn't, isn't, isn't that funny as you think back on it? I don't think, judging by the years that he was there, I think he probably taught there a little bit after, but I can't say for sure. So Bishop Gorman High School is not only a national sports powerhouse, also where, as you mentioned, the Fertitas of UFC fame attended and where Dana White was expelled. Um, but but the, but the, the best part of the best part of the story, as Bobby would brag about his brother teaching, he would tell people that his his brother was a teacher at this Catholic school named Black Gordman High School. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> And, and, of course, I had to play the gorilla monsoon role and, and correct him and say, no, Bobby, Bishop Gorman, Bishop Gorman. He said, that's what I said, Black Gordon in high school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Now, now, Robert Heenan, I mean, did he have any, I mean, I mean, I know Bobby shows up and, and um, you know, at his door one day, but, like, the name, I mean, did he ever, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, Bobby was a, like a kind of famous guy, you know, in the sense of if people say, you know, in, in certainly from, you know, the mid eighties on, if somebody like, Oh, your name's Robert Heenan, blah, 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 blah. You do, you, you know, you know what I mean? Like, did he get that a lot or do you even know? Oh, I know. Oh, I know. He got it <laughs> a lot. Okay. And people would ask all of the family members if they were related and, and they would, they would laugh about it and say, no, and the family did not watch wrestling. I believe they had an idea of who Bobby was, probably be, probably because so many people had brought it up to them, right? Yeah. Um, so they didn't, and, and Bobby always, once he found out that they were based in Las Vegas, he said to them, and his father, Bobby's father died in 1990. So Bobby was appearing in Las Vegas with his name on the billboard at the showboat during that time when the entire family was living here in Las Vegas. So in the, always, the, the, the AWA days, right? The AWA days, right. So he yeah. always, um, he, 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 he would mention that, I, I wonder if they have ever thought that they were like, if we were, could possibly be related, but the answer was no, they just would, when they were approached by people and they were, um, that they would just, just laugh it off and say, no, no relation until the time when they found out. And then Bobby would brag that his, uh, his brothers would be wearing his Bobby Heenan t-shirts and they became his biggest fans. And I remember when they would attend the, uh, 
the WCW shows in Las Vegas back in that era. And it's just so funny to think about how you have you have the <laughs> 77 years ago that the Bobby Heenan's father must have been really busy. <laughs> <laughs> To, to, to father that Catholic priest, to father Bobby Heenan, and then you look at the next generation, and one of the sons of Bobby's half brothers worked for the FBI. But once once you get to really know the layers of this and and the family and get to know, and it's a wonderful family, um, it, it it really is sort of a crazy story. But if you've got that Bobby Heenan book, it's it's probably a five page chapter, but Man, it's I, I know it was by far the most proud he was as far as any part of the book was about that because it sort of explained where he came from. And uh, yeah, re- really, really interesting. Hey, guys, I, I tell you, I do want to wrap it up, but I do want to say one thing. I think I, I don't know whether I've mentioned this or not, but uh, Don's wife, uh, Terry West, has just has just been so strong throughout all of this for Don. And if I didn't mention her earlier, I am remiss in not doing that and, and not pointing out how she has been by his side and just tried to keep him going and uh, everything she's done for him in the past. Well, they've been married for 30 years, but especially in the last year and a half. So I do want to make that mention as well. So thank you, guys. Okay, thanks. Thanks, uh, Mike. I yeah, really, really appreciate it. Mike, you know, this is not the best circumstance but whenever you come on it's 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 always a blast for me and i i get to listen to you tell stories and it's amazing and and the people who uh can't now can't wait for this show to come out they're they're super excited so thanks again no thank you it was a tough one to do thanks a lot guys okay all right so for mike and dave i am garrett and to everyone thanks for listening